Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, joining you from our studios in Tel Aviv. Later on the show, Judy Maltz, who has been covering the Ukrainian refugee crisis, will explain why many Jews from the Ukraine appear to be choosing Berlin over Israel as their new home. But first... No apology! No apology! We will not back down! No apology! We are not afraid! No apology! Not a drop of doubt! APAC, the preeminent pro-Israel lobby in Washington, D.C., has been navigating some choppy waters lately after taking a controversial decision to begin endorsing and funding candidates for Congress ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. We'll talk about the fallout from that decision with Tom Dine, who headed APAC for 13 years. All of that coming up. So I'm very excited to welcome Tom Dine to the podcast. Tom Dine was the executive director of APAC from 1980 to 1993, which actually included the time I was working as a journalist in Washington, D.C. So I can vouch that that period was a period of time when APAC was really at the peak of its influence. After that, Tom served as Assistant Administrator for Europe and the New Independent States of Eurasia at USAID, and he also had a long stint as President of Radio Free Europe. Despite that impressive long resume for most people, they hear Tom Dine's name and they think APAC and say APAC. Am I wrong, Tom? You're absolutely right. I can't go anywhere down the streets of Washington, D.C. without someone saying, didn't I know you at APAC? (laughs) So, APAC's been around since 1951. It's always styled itself as a grassroots movement representing the many American citizens, Jewish mostly, but also non-Jewish, who strongly support the state of Israel and lobby the U.S. government on its behalf in favor of what they believe are its interests economically, security-wise, etc., But it was always a lobby, not a PAC that actually raised money or endorsed candidates. The name APAC was always misleading, right? Because it sounded like a PAC, but it wasn't really a PAC. It always encouraged its leaders to be politically active and contribute. And it was kind of no secret who they wanted them to give money to. Have I got that right, Tom? Yes, you differentiated quite carefully, and that's good. APAC itself doesn't give money, but individuals associated with APAC or members do are encouraged to participate in political fundraising. So that's why it was a huge deal and a major change in December when after 70 years of its existence, APAC surprised many people by announcing that it was establishing two new political action committees, real PACs, a regular PAC and a super PAC that would allow it to directly fund political campaigns in order to, quote, significantly deepen and strengthen the involvement of the pro-Israel community in politics. So, Tom, was that something that was on the table back when you were running APAC? We would never have considered it because we did not want the institution, that is APAC itself, as as a Washington-based organization, we did not want it to be into someone's campaign for federal office, House or Senate. So, because when you do that, you choose sides. And we wanted the APAC membership as individuals, not as APACers, but as individuals, to choose sides. So, when APAC announced recently that they were going ahead and doing it, you weren't a big fan of the decision from the beginning, right? Well, immediately I raised questions, uh, both privately and publicly, that this would require partisanship. 
not bipartisanship. Bipartisanship meaning you're in favor of both political parties and candidates thereof, but let the citizens who are eligible to vote choose sides, not the organization. So what they've done is choose people to support, by nature are controversial, and in this case, very controversial, because the issue of democracy is on the table here in Washington as well as across the country. So from the very beginning, progressive groups were kind of warning that they would be all over APAC if they endorsed Republicans who hadn't voted to certify the 2020 election, which, as they saw it, was a subversion of American democracy. And J Street even issued a pro-democracy pledge for all pro-Israel PACs to not endorse candidates who sided with the January 6th insurrectionists. And then, lo and behold, not a big surprise, APAC's new PAC announces that it's endorsing, ahead of the 2022 midterm elections, 61 Republicans and 59 Democrats. And of that group, 35 of the Republicans indeed did not vote to certify. So did you feel like that was fairly inevitable? No, I didn't, because I thought they would be more prudent and show better judgment. And I carefully choose those two words, prudence and judgment, because these are subjective decisions. But the issue on the table now is not whether or not you're pro-Israel. Gallup has just come out with a new annual poll, which they've been doing for at least 50 years, I think, showing that the country remained pro-Israel anywhere between 55 to 65 percent, and a very small number pro-Palestinian. The issue then becomes, what are you trying to prove? Just because a person votes for foreign assistance in which APEC gets military aid, etc., that's not just the heart of it. The heart of it is in today's world, here particularly in the United States, but it's all over the world also, are you pro-democratic or are you pro-tocracy? And there's an accusation between the two parties, but it goes beyond parties, that one particular party, which used to have a very different position, is now pro-autocratic. And you don't want to be in on that side. We can talk further by announcing its decisions, as you said, 120 people that they've endorsed to give money to. By doing that, they declare themselves on one side of the aisle versus another. And instead of looking at individuals for who they are. And yes, you want people who care about are sensitive to and see Israel as a comrade, if you will, of the United States. But in this case, you've left out the most important part of today's discussion, which is, are you pro-democratic or anti-democratic? And by endorsing these 35 people who basically have sided on the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol. Now, that is the biggest no-no possible in American, not just politics, but American society today. And that, to me, is just very poor judgment, and it puts into question the leadership's decision-making. What are they trying to prove? I saw the statement was put out after people criticized APAC for its decisions, not J Street, but internally. I consider myself an alumnus of APAC, and there are plenty of us out there who were 
startled by the initial decision, but they've walked into a trap they set themselves, and now they're going to be seen as pro-anti-democratic. So let me read from that uh, public letter that was written by APAC CEO Howard Kaur and President Betsy Korn. They said, quote, We make no apologies for this position. There are many important issues on which Americans disagree, but Israel should not be one of them. We have friends in Congress who are skeptical of foreign aid for any nation except for Israel. We have friends who are pro-choice and pro-life, those who are liberal on immigration and those who want to tighten our borders. And yes, those who disagree strongly on issues surrounding the 2020 presidential election election. So what's your reaction to the no apologies letter? I think it doesn't help their case and it doesn't answer the criticisms. It is a highly defensive statement that puts into question further why they did what they've done and the consequences that they will have to live with now. You can't tell Liz Cheney that that was a good decision by APAC. They're Republicans that they've endured, these 35 people, but not it leaves out people like Liz Cheney, who's been one of the most heroic persons in Congress over the last one year. In discussions I've had around the city since all this has been taking place, it's the worst-case scenario I can think of, number one. Number two, doesn't answer the critics' questions. And number three, it's going to put into doubt those on the Democratic side that APAC is bipartisan, which is the goal. It has always been the goal. When Cy Kennan founded the organization, you said 51, in the 51, 52, 53 period, he made it very clear that Capitol Hill was the first line of Israel's defense, number one. And secondly, that we were we, those who have grown up with APAC, APAC would be neutral when it came to people's elections. Now, we're, I'm not only talking about the organization, separate the organization from individual members. So you feel like this endorsement of these Republicans is at a whole different level, right, than the sort of counterpunch criticism of people on the Republican right who are saying, hey, APAC is endorsing and funding 27 Democrats who voted yes for the Iran deal in 2015 when killing the nuclear deal was one of the you know issues in the forefront for APAC. Well, right. But that's an ongoing issue. And I think you have legitimate people taking legitimate positions on both sides of the question. There is no other side to the question of the resurrection, the insurrection, <laughs> January 6, uh, 2021, and all the interplay that has gone along with that. The divisions are deep and wide here in Washington. We know that. Everybody knows that. But they've always been there. People in the past have known how to compromise. There is nothing to compromise when it comes to democracy. And that's my point. Why do you think APAC did it? Do you feel like it's struggling in this highly partisan era to keep support for Israel bipartisanship? When they announced it, they said it was a necessary move to remain successful in an ever-changing Washington. Do you feel like this was actual strategic decision that was necessary? Do you think it was a pitch to remain relevant at a time when COVID has sort of eliminated the signature event of APAC, which is the large policy conference, which gets thousands of people in the same room, which we don't know, you know, when's the next time they're going to be able to do that? What do you think is behind this? And is it clear to you at this point that it was a mistake? I think it's a mistake. I think it's a theological mistake. I think it's a, an existential mistake. I had somebody yesterday who is a former employee. This person worked for APAC for about 40 years. And this person was appalled and felt that it is only downhill from now on. 
Now, I'm not going to accept that position, but I'm telling you that people are seeing the worst-case scenario about APAC itself and about the U.S.-Israel relationship. Therefore, as long as you accept the fact that APAC is a central part, a key part to keeping the U.S.-Israel partnership alive and well, strong, close. Therefore, this person, and I'm obviously protecting, this person felt it was self-destructive. Now, if that's even halfway right, you have to deal with it and deal with it a hell of a lot better than in a highly defensive statement put out by Corn and Court. That didn't solve anything. And it played mind games, if you will, about, oh, immigration versus this versus that. That's bullshit. And it doesn't help APAC. So I think they put them, their foot deep into a hole and not clear to me how they're going to get out of it. So when our reporter Ben Samuels interviewed you in January, you said, quote, if APAC gives money to anti-democratic people who believe the last election was a fraud and they support the January 6th insurrection, no, sir, I would not give them a dime. So after this has happened, do you still consider yourself supporter of APAC? <laughs> That's a very good question. Well, I do. I wish it well. I think it's been an essential part of developing this very strong international relationship. And I worry. Now, there's another question I ask myself in things that I write or talk about, which is, is APAC essential? And some are beginning more and more saying, you don't need it. It's already a strong and close relationship, bilateral relationship. And therefore, they ought to go out of business. If you get too many people saying APAC ought to go out of business, it's no longer relevant, then you don't have the grassroots support that I think is essential to that bilateral relationship. So if someone was waving a magic wand right now and said, Tom Dine, we're temporarily restoring you to the helm of APAC, where would you steer the ship at this point? Well, no one's going to do that, number one. <laughs> and number two, I'd have to seriously consider whether or not I would take such an anointment because I don't think you want to hire the past. Though everything I've set in motion is still in play in terms of grassroots political activity, and I used to think bipartisanship, and staying out of endorsing candidates. So those are three key elements in terms of what I would want to see APAC today. But if someone put the magic wand in my hand, I would end the two PACs immediately. I would go back to business as usual. No endorsements, maintaining a bipartisan relationships on the Hill and in the White House. So just as a final question before we go, because of your experience in the U.S.-Israel relationship and since so much of what APAC has been was built on the confluence of U.S. and Israeli strategic interests, it seems like we're at a turning point right now. I mean, recently there's been a conflict with uh, the Israeli high-tech sector and the defense industry regarding doing business with China. That's conflicted with the U.S. desire to keep advanced technology out of the hands of the Chinese. But now we see a crisis in that Israel is torn between its strategic unbroken alliance with the U.S. and its need to keep the waters calm with Russia and Vladimir Putin because of the situation on its northern border. Do you see the current situation as a threat to what is supposed to be this bulletproof, unshakable partnership between the U.S. and Israel? I don't. Those have always been around the high-tech situation, for instance. In my time, Israel was, was fixing tanks and even selling arms to the Chinese that come from the U.S., and the U.S. defense establishment didn't want those trade secrets to be given to the Chinese. So those have always been issues. 
and they can be taken care of by serious people in serious mediation efforts and discussion on what to do. Israel's modern economy has been based on export, and part of the exports have been military. The other part is high technology, which is to their credit and to an amazing display of brain power. But in this case, the high tech in the Chinese has to be dealt with by those concerned. In terms of United States and NATO versus Putin and his desire to reestablish an imperial conquering of the vast land that composed the former Soviet Union, that's a serious geopolitical issue, and there's no way in hell that Israel can rely on Putin. Yes, there are Russian speakers galore in Israel who vote, so I understand ethnic politics in that environment, but in the case of Putin, and the movement is on to arrest Putin, to investigate Putin, and to try him at the International Criminal Court. You don't want to be on that guy's side, and Israel better watch out for that. Tom Dine, I really, really appreciate you coming on our podcast. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. Coming up, Judy Maltz fills us in on the reason that many Ukrainian Jews fleeing the war in their country are heading to Berlin instead of Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. Hello, Judy Maltz, our intrepid Haaretz foreign correspondent who has been racking up the frequent flyer miles lately, reporting first from the Ukraine-Moldova border, and now is just back with a follow-up trip where she was reporting from Berlin. Hi, Judy. How's the jet lag? Well, when you go in that direction, there really is no jet lag. (laughs) So that is not something I'm suffering from right now. So a little bit of behind the scenes action here. You had just returned the week before last from Moldova, where you reported on the flood of refugees from Ukraine, focusing on the efforts of international Jewish organizations to help them. And you had just landed back here in Israel when you told me that in a few days you were turning around again and traveling to Berlin, Germany. And I I said, Berlin? What is it that you saw and heard in Moldova that convinced you that Berlin was the next place you needed to go? Well, here's the thing, Allison. One of the things that really struck me as extremely interesting and maybe even counterintuitive was that many of the Jewish refugees I spoke with while in Moldova, when I would ask them, where are you headed? Israel? Um, I don't know. Maybe. Where else? Oh, Germany. More and more people were telling me they were going to Germany or that they hadn't decided. Maybe Israel, maybe Germany, in the same breath. For me, this was very, very strange to even see some sort of comparison between these two possible destinations. Now, obviously, it is not a new thing that Russian-speaking Jews go to Germany. After the fall of the Iron Curtain, in fact, uh, Germany was became one of the fastest-growing Jewish communities in the world, because after Israel, that is where most of the Russian-speaking Jews went. Of course, though, many, many more came to Israel. We had more than a million that came here, but there were a couple hundred thousand that did go to Germany. Now, based on the anecdotal evidence I had from this trip to Moldova, it seemed that at least half, if not more, were going to Germany this time. And when I got to the airport in Kishinev, I was sitting on the floor of the airport and I wrote a quick pitch to my editors. And I said, listen, I think the next big Jewish world story is in Germany. 
And I explained to them why. And they said, go for it. Get there. Good editors you have, Judy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was very fortunate. So that turned into your story, why Jewish refugees from Ukraine are choosing Germany over Israel. You went, you saw, you talked to people, you reported. So tell us, what are the reasons that you found Berlin had become a preferred destination for many Ukrainian Jews in your conversations with them there? There are a lot of different reasons. Now, one reason that most people will tell you if you ask them is, well, obviously they prefer to go to Germany because most of them still want to believe that they can go back to Ukraine and Germany is closer. So, you know, they'll park themselves there rather than take an overseas flight to Israel and be stuck, you know, very far away. But in fact, actually, it's not that much further. If you've ever taken a flight from Kiev to Tel Aviv, it's just a couple of hours. It's, it doesn't take all that much more time. We're not talking about going to Hawaii or South America. The difference in distance, maybe it feels closer because it's still on the same continent. But that's not really the issue. Let's start with number one. What we mentioned before was that there were a couple hundred thousand Russian-speaking Jews who did end up in Germany. When they came, it's no secret, they were not really welcome then in the early 1990s because there already was a very small German-speaking community there. And you know how established communities tend to treat or think of the new immigrants like, come, great, but you know we don't really want to have anything to do with you. That situation has changed because there are now a couple hundred thousand, about a quarter of a million Russian-speaking Jews living in Germany. So these people have kind of a built-in support system already. And not only do they speak the same language, many of them are their friends and relatives. When they came to Germany, they had where to stay because they have grandparents and uncles and aunts and best friends and old friends from the neighborhood in Kiev who are living in Berlin or Hamburg or Frankfurt right now. So it makes it that much easier. And uh, Germany also has a reputation for very generous conditions for refugees, right? Right, for refugees, but especially for Jewish refugees. Jewish refugees coming to Germany, and this is something that started with the last, I don't want to call it the Aliyah, wave, the last immigration wave to Germany in the early 1990s was that the German government decided at that time to give a special status to Jewish refugees. And they still have that status. So it's a preferred status to other refugees. Like there's certain things they have, I guess, better access to the labor market. They maybe don't need to have as high a level of language proficiency to get citizenship, all sorts of concessions for Jewish immigrants that don't apply to other refugee groups. And in this way, they can, in a way, even compete with Israel. In fact, with certain things, they more than compete with Israel, because one of the things I discovered is that they get free housing when they, just imagine if immigrants coming to Israel today, you know what (laughs) housing prices are like. Imagine if they got free housing. Also, you know, it's the weather is... um, They don't like sunny weather? Well... (laughs) They're used to the very distinctive seasons that you get in Germany. And the culture is closer to what they know. And one thing that we really have to remember is that after the fall of the Iron Curtain, close to 90% of the Jews of Ukraine left. They could have gone to Israel if they wanted. And the fact that 
30 years later, they didn't go to Israel means that maybe Zionism is not something that is very strong in their DNA. So given the choice today to come to Israel, a place they could have gone to for 30 years and never went, or Germany, I guess for many of them, it makes more sense to go to Germany. What about the religious issue? Most of these families are mixed families. Not everyone in them is halachically Jewish, if any of them, right? Are they aware of kind of the difficulties regarding the religious establishment in Israel? And do you think this is playing any kind of a role in their decision? That's a great point, Allison. I'm sure they are aware of it. And I'm sure it is playing a role because about, I would say, three quarters probably of those Ukrainians who are eligible to immigrate to Israel under the law of return and receive automatic citizenship here are not halachic Jews, which means in a way, when they come, they are second-class citizens. They can't marry in the country. They can't be buried in Jewish cemeteries. It's very, very different in Germany. In Germany, most of the Jewish community is not Orthodox. And there's much greater acceptance of those who are not halachically Jewish. There's an example in the story of this couple that I met there. He's Jewish. She's in the process of converting. She was about to finish the conversion now, and they were supposed to get married next week. But then their whole life was disrupted because of the war. They fled to Germany. They were planning to come to Israel, but they can't because... Her conversion has not been finalized. And until her conversion isn't finalized, they can't get married. So he can't bring her. This week, you reported that the Jewish agency was easing some of the bureaucracy involved for Jews who want to come to Israel from Ukraine under the law of return, you know, cutting corners. Is there any connection between, I don't know, a competitiveness wanting them to come to Israel instead of going to Berlin and other places and uh, these decisions to kind of uh, shortcut the route to Aliyah for them? I don't think they will admit that there is, but I definitely think, believe that they know what's going on. And it's not only Germany. Some of them may be staying in Hungary, Romania. I've even heard that Sweden wants these refugees, Jews included. So Israel does have to compete for them if it wants them. Now, yes, that can be part of it. As you know, you did a story, I think, a couple months ago. It can be so, so difficult if you are a Russian speaker wanting to make Aliyah to Israel because the Jewish agency and Nativ, which is the organization that is dedicated to this particular population, they require so much documentation before they will allow you in. And it can take months at certain times. So, you know, rather than lose these people, they're saying, okay, you know what? You were on birthright or your brother was on birthright. Okay, that's good. Come and we'll deal with it in Israel. And the idea being, okay, once they're here, they're not going to go back. They'll figure out something. So you said that um, the community in Berlin is uh, kind of more open-armed, welcoming to this wave than they were to the previous wave. What examples did you see of how the community is interested in accepting them and helping them? By coincidence, the first day I arrived in Berlin, which was a week ago Thursday, the Jewish Community Center there, they had transformed their, their very large auditorium into a help center for refugees. There were these huge tables in the back of the room piled up with old clothes, medicine, shoes, 
toys, games, everything. They were serving hot meals to these refugees. And in fact, the following day, it was very interesting, the president of the Jewish community actually held a press conference for the not only the Jewish press in Germany, which is obviously very small, but for the entire German press to show them what they were doing. And uh, they took them on a tour of this new help center. They showed them the area outside where it made this kind of children's corner where kids could play and there were toys. And there was a room where they had Russian speaking social workers to help people fill out forms so that they could already get status in the country. Afterwards, I was talking to the spokesman of the president of the Jewish community, and I said, is this like a normal thing that you hold press conferences? Like, when was the last time you did this? And he could not remember, because it's not every day that you see the Jewish community there really mobilizing for anything like this. They said the last time it happened was 30 years ago, but even that I don't believe, because as I was saying before, they weren't that excited 30 years ago about the new new immigrants who were coming from Russia and the former Soviet Union. And in one of your stories, you quoted a local rabbi as saying, you know, after COVID, when, you know, people weren't going to synagogue and coming together and everyone was sort of spread out and scattered, that this was actually bringing the community back together and back into communal spaces, sort of joining the effort to help the refugees. Right. They don't want to say that this is a good thing for us, that this is there's a silver lining right. for us and all that. Obviously, you don't want to say such a thing, but it's clear that there is. If these people end up staying there for the past 15 years, the Jewish community in Germany has been shrinking every single year by about a thousand people. You know, this could be just the thing they need to grow. And it's a good population, lots of young families, educated people, not all, but many from what I could see. And that's what they need if they want to sustain themselves. Judy Maltz, nobody knows how to report this stuff like you do. Everybody go out and check out Judy's amazing stories from Moldova and from Germany on Haaretz.com. Thank you so much, Judy. Hope you get to stay home for a little while now. Yeah, I'm going on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Allison. And that brings us to the close of Haaretz Weekend. Many thanks to my guests, Tom Dine and Judy Maltz, and my producer and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. Don't forget to tune in Monday for Haaretz Weekly with Amir Tibon. Until next time, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv.